Thank you, David, and uh, good morning. One of the greatest films depicting the uh, horrors and heroism of war that have been recently made is Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. I'm sure many of you have seen it. It tells the story of how Captain John Miller and a small detachment of American troops were dispatched by General Marshall to retrieve Private Jack Ryan from the Normandy landings, from the front line of those landings. News had come that Ryan's three brothers had died in war, and so the order went out that the fourth son should be repatriated as soon as possible. Through Miller's heroism and tenacity, Ryan is eventually found and he's rescued, but not before Miller himself is killed in the rescue operation. Now, the final scene of the film fast-forwards 50 years. Jack Ryan is now an old man, and he's returning with his family to pay his respects at the grave of John Miller in Normandy. Perhaps we could dim the lights and see what happens.
Could we have the lights on, please? In the hall? Thank you. Very moving final scene to that film. It's not hard to grasp, is it, why throughout the rest of his life, Private Ryan felt the weight of the need to prove himself worthy of Miller's sacrifice. Knelt at the grave, he unburdens his heart. Tell me, I've tried to earn what you did for me. And his wife, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. It's quite a burden, isn't it? Imagine that were you. How would you know if you've ever done enough? Indeed, how would you know what a good life looked like? And when it came to it, how could you possibly repay the debt of another human being's life? No wonder that Jack Ryan was plagued by that burden all of his life. Who wouldn't be? In typically brilliant fashion, Steven Spielberg has put his finger upon a deep-seated human instinct. And it's one that we all struggle with. It's the need to prove ourselves worthy. The desire to make ourselves acceptable. Being in debt to another person is a burden that we find almost impossible to bear. At its most trivial level, we see it. And another person does us a favor and we say, thanks mate, I owe you one. Or we're invited round to somebody's for a meal and on the way out at the front door, what do we say? You must come round to us next time. Message is, I can't be in your debt. But a much more profound level, it actually takes us to another battle that raged in Europe. Not 60 years ago, not 100 years ago, but in fact 500 years ago. The outcome of that conflict shaped the future of Western civilization and indeed the world for the ensuing five millennia, right down to the present day. This wasn't a battle fought with guns or tanks or armies. It was a battle to recapture the true message of Christianity. That message had got lost in a fog of religiosity and superstition. It was a battle that we know and celebrate this year as the Reformation. For hundreds of years beforehand, the message of the gospel had been distorted and buried by the very people who should have been proclaiming it. The church had become corrupt. corrupt. It had pursued power and wealth with a vengeance. Entrusted with the gospel of grace, they had turned it into a gospel of works. So the message was, if you wanted to be right with God, then you had to earn it. You had to do this penance. You had to go on that pilgrimage. Most of all, you had to give your money to buy forgiveness. It's quite hard for us at this distance to understand how massive a burden that was in that situation that was 
totally across Europe. What was happening? The church was exploiting that deep-seated instinct in the human heart not to be in debt to another person, and especially not to be in debt to God himself. And in so doing, the state church had accumulated unprecedented wealth by teaching that you could earn salvation by giving your money or by buying favor. They sold what were called indulgences for your wrongdoing. Another big income stream at that time was the thought that you might be able to rescue loved ones from an imaginary purgatory somewhere between earth and heaven by buying their release from that place. And who wouldn't want to do that if you could? It's no wonder it became a vast earner for the church, enabling the building of cathedrals all over Europe and the feathering of the nest of a corrupt religious elite. But worst of all, that message was as far from the teaching and the life of Jesus as it was possible to imagine. Indeed, it was the very opposite of the true message of the Bible that salvation is not earned but received. It's not won by our efforts. It's given by Jesus' sacrificial death upon the cross. And it was that rediscovery of that truth by a monk called Martin Luther that liberated vast sways of Europe 500 years ago. The truth that salvation is not earned, but received. You see, reading, can you picture this? Here's this man in his cell, and he's reading the Bible for himself. And he's understanding that in reading the Bible, what he's hearing from the church around him has nothing to do with the message of the Bible. It tells him, among other things, that faith is based upon what God has said in his word, the Bible. Not in what man invents. Indeed, that Jesus is the one and only way to God. The full and final saviour. As he read his Bible, he understood that faith in this Jesus, faith in Christ, and in his death on our behalf at Calvary, is the only way to be made right with God. And when he understood that, he understood something of the amazing grace of God in Christ to the world, which was for God's glory, not ours. Those five truths of the Reformation, the solas, the onlys, as we call them, that it's the Bible alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, for God's glory alone, so captured Luther's heart and others around him that it liberated him and all those who came in contact with this great gospel message that he had rediscovered. At this distance, it's hard for us to imagine the sense of freedom and joy and liberation that understanding this gospel message for ourselves had upon people. But if you've been weighed down all your life by the burden of being told you've got to earn it, 
You've got to earn your salvation. If you've been exploited and manipulated by corrupt religious leaders, it's not hard to understand something of how that begins to liberate your spirit, is it? These Reformation truths that we celebrate this year spread like wildfire across Europe. Tens and thousands of people were liberated from the tyranny of an oppressive religion. And a truth long buried was reopened. And more than that, the message of a relationship with a creator who loved us and had given himself for us was able to be reproclaimed. And that acceptance with God is not about me earning it, but God giving it as a glorious, wonderful gift of grace. In a nutshell, salvation, as Luther put it, is by salvation alone. It's by faith alone. And that phrase is in the middle of our reading this morning. If you've still got the Bible in front of you, if you've got that passage in your leaflet, it's there where Luther, not Luther, but the Apostle Paul puts it like this. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by faith in the Son of God. Now the man who wrote those words 1,500 years before Luther, who we know as the Apostle Paul, had himself, like Luther, been passionate in trying to live a life that would please God, that would earn his favour. Indeed, he was so convinced that the only way that you could earn God's favor was by such a life that he he was horrified by the message that these Christians, these followers of Jesus in his day in the first century were proclaiming around the Roman world. That you can't earn it. That it's received by faith. And such was his passionate belief that you could only earn it that he set about trying to eradicate these Christians off of the face of the earth he was bent upon doing that but like Luther Saul was in for the shock of his life on his way to Damascus bent on finding and imprisoning and even executing Christians he's encountered by the risen Lord Jesus Christ in that famous Damascus Road experience where he sees the light. The light is actually the glory of Christ. He's overwhelmed by this blinding light. And he hears a voice from within the light and it says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is astonished. He thought he was on God's side. Persecuting you, Lord? I'm not doing Yes, you are. You're trying to eradicate this message that I've left with my disciples. You are persecuting me. No wonder he fell off his horse. No wonder he fell to the ground. He was struck blind for three days. But he was a changed man. Changed by this message of salvation. It turns out that his fight wasn't with Christians but with God himself. And the rest, as they say, is history. Overwhelmed, humbled, Paul, as he is renamed, bows the knee to Christ 
and becomes the greatest apologist and advocate of Christianity that the world has ever seen. And right before us, in his own words, here in Galatians 2 verse 20, is that expression of what it means to have faith. He says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't know what the word faith conjures up to you. For many people, we we think of it in a rather strange way. Faith is something that I have to conjure up. Because as a schoolboy said to his RE teacher, faith, mister, is believing what you know ain't true. Or faith is like the measles. You know, some people get the measles, some don't. Some people have faith, some don't. You got faith, oh, I'm so pleased for you. Me, I'm afraid I haven't got it, don't need it. That's how often we think of the word faith. It's not how the Bible uses the word faith, nor what it means by the word faith. No, when the Bible uses the word faith, it means what Paul and what Luther meant. It is faith in a person. It is a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone to be right with God. Another way of expressing it is to say it's trust in God. We put faith in people and things all the while, don't we? We take people at their word and we act upon it. That's the essence of faith. Christian faith is to take God at his word. I can't conjure up that faith. It's not something that I've got a religious gene that makes me have faith. Not at all. The faith of the Christian is not in themselves. It's not in their performance. For they know themselves to be totally useless before God. No, their faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In what he has done to make it possible for anybody to be made right with God and brought into relationship with the God who made us and created us and has birthed us to have a relationship with himself. Christian faith is in Jesus Christ, a man of history. It is faith in the one who walked this earth, who demonstrated by what he did and what he said what God is really like. And what is God like? He is the giving God. Do you see what Paul says here? He said, my faith is in the one who gave himself for me. Who gave himself for me. For me, in those somber graveyards of the First and Second World War, think for a moment about those white crosses that form the headstone to the grave. Why are they there? They're there because they stand testimony to the greatest sacrifice ever, that of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary and to the ultimate price that God himself paid to rescue us from two enemies that we are totally powerless in the face of sin and death every single human being is utterly powerless in the face of sin and death without exclusion try not to sin We make our New Year's resolutions, etc., etc. By the end of the week, 
we failed again. It's impossible to go through a day without one perverse thought or lustful thought or wrong word. We don't want to, but we do. There's an enemy that's bigger and more powerful than us. And what about death? We live in a culture that doesn't want to talk about death, a culture that tries to ignore its reality, a culture filled with Botox that wants to put off the effects of age. It's a denial of reality. One in one die. They are enemies that we're powerless in the face of. And it's those enemies that Jesus has come to conquer and has conquered by his death and resurrection. At the cross, he pays the price for our sin. As he rises from the tomb, he proves himself to be God himself, the God of life, the God of resurrection, and the one who grants eternal life to those whose faith is in him. You see... Our natural instinct is to want to earn God's favor. We really struggle with the thought of being in his debt. It may well be how you think, even though you're not aware of it. An indicator that we think this way is the balance sheet mentality. For if we think of the future, if we think of God, if we think of eternity, we construct this. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm not as bad as I could be. I'm not an Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. I, I'm not a child abuser. And we have the balance sheet. And on one side are those things that we, we would acknowledge that we've done wrong. Oh, certainly. I'm not perfect. But on the plus side, it's all the things that we've done good. And you know which is longer, of course, don't you? In our mind. The plus side, of course. And we think that the way God deals with this is to look at the balance sheet and say, well, there's more in the plus side than the, fourth and the negative side. You're okay. That's the balance sheet mentality. Do you see what that is? It's saying to God, I can earn it. You're not really serious when you send Jesus. I can earn this. I can do a new few nice things for other people. I can observe religious rituals on occasion. But you see, the cross puts a cross through that. Well and truly. That self-delusion. You see, the cross... And on this day, what a great day to remember it. The cross confronts us with the enormity of our rebellion, my rebellion, your rebellion, against God. And it confronts us with the seriousness with which God views that. Our plight is so serious, our helplessness so profound that we can't save ourselves, it required God to come to the rescue. And that's exactly what he's done in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came on that rescue mission. Unlike Mrs. Ryan, God had but one son. The Bible calls him God's beloved son. And the son came to earth to rescue us. It was 
Christ alone. There was no other way for God's justice to be satisfied and his love to be demonstrated and extended to all the world. The Son of Man loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how personal it is? The Son of Man loved me and gave himself for me. That love, sublime divine love, lies at the heart of the gospel. It's not a sentimental, fluffy love. It's a tough love. The love that lays down its life for others. That's why when we're reminded of it, as we are on this Remembrance Sunday, we are rightly humbled and moved by people's sacrifice. After all, it was Jesus who said, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. That humbles us. Yet when Christ laid down his life, it actually wasn't for his friends. It was for those who were his enemies. He didn't come for loyal servants, he came for rebels. Here's how Paul puts it elsewhere in the Bible. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God didn't wait for us to clean up our lives, to make ourselves acceptable to him, to earn salvation. He, above all people, knew that that was impossible. He knew it couldn't happen. No, he took the initiative. He came on the rescue mission. He bore the penalty. He bore the judgment for our sin. He stood in our place. He is the God of the blood and sweat and tears of Calvary. And at the cross, Jesus took the bullet of God's rightful judgment that was destined for you and I. You see, all true love is sacrificial. It's the very nature of love. And such is God's love for us that his son goes to the place of excruciating pain and torture and agony where every last vestige of human dignity is stripped from him. And in that place of utter degradation and indeed God-forsakenness, he bears our sin. It's the greatest demonstration of love, of self-giving, sacrificial love that the world will ever see. And it's a price that we could never pay. Indeed, it's an affront to God to think we could. And when Luther, like Paul, embraced this glorious truth, he was liberated. He was free to know and love God. That's what happens when you become a Christian. This is what you're discovering. Your life with God is no longer a performance. You cannot perform. But you are accepted in Christ. It's faith in Christ. You're accepted by him in the first place and it's the way that you live the rest of your Christian life here upon earth. By faith in in Christ by taking him at his word by trusting him through all the events the ups and downs the heartaches and joys of life 
It's not ritual, but relationship. Why do so many people come here on a Sunday morning, not simply on a Remembrance Sunday, but every Sunday, who know this for themselves? They come not out of duty, but out of delight. They come because they've experienced firsthand in their life what Paul, what Luther, what millions of people have have also discovered. That when you come to faith in Christ, it liberates you. It enables you to love God and begin loving other people in a way that was unimaginable. And you do that not to earn God's favor. It's simply a reflection now of the grace and the favor and the love and the heart of God that he has shown you and that you want to, however inadequately, show other people. The life I now live, says Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every day I'm free to delight in this God. To live in the light of his love and care and constancy. That even when I blow it, even when I let him down and let others down, even when I act as God of my own life, the price his son has paid covers that sin. It's not a performance. My identity is in Christ. By faith in him. Now, does that describe your life? Is that how you think? Let me put it another way as we close. When at the end of your life you are ushered into the presence of God, as we all indeed will be, the Bible promises that, and all the promises of the Bible are true. And God says, why should I allow you into my heaven? What will you answer? If your answer is along the lines of, well, God, because I tried my best. I tried to live a good life. I tried to earn your favor. I wasn't as bad as I could have been. Look at the balance sheet. What do you think he'll say when at his side is his beloved son bearing the marks of Calvary, the marks of true love, the marks of salvation, the marks that scream, you can't earn it, I've earned it for you. What do you think he'll say? My friend, your words will die on your lips in shame. No, there's another answer that we must give. It's to say, Lord, because I'm that sinner that you sent your son to this earth to rescue. And my trust, my hope of entering heaven, a new heaven, a new earth forever, is on the basis of what he has done for me back there on Calvary. But before we can give such a response, then we must have given that response now. In the words of the famous hymn that we're going to sing in a moment or two, Rock of Ages, the first words of faith are to say to God, in the light 
of his amazing love. Lord, nothing in my hand I bring. No self-justification, no works, no earning it. Simply to your cross, I cling. I cling. Faith is the response that God's love is to draw from our hearts. Earn it? You can't. And you really must stop thinking. You must stop thinking that you can. God will never be satisfied with your eye apart from Christ. But in Christ, a faith in Christ makes us accepted and acceptable to him. By faith in Christ, God is completely satisfied with you because he's fully satisfied with his son, Jesus. You must be in Christ. Let's pray. Father, on this day when we remember such heroism and sacrifice, such self-giving, we thank you that beyond that, as we thank you for those things, we are pointed to yourself. You are the sacrificial, self-giving, ever-loving God. And Father, this morning, we pray that you would deliver us from taking light or making little of the way that you have made for us to be right with you. We thank you that this message that Luther discovered is, is there for us all to discover in the gospel. And I pray this morning that if we don't know it for ourselves, that we wouldn't go to our beds tonight without rejoicing in this truth and perhaps for the first time in our lives saying, Lord, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross. I cling and discover the flood of love and forgiveness and peace and joy that will enter our life by being right with you. Lord, you are our maker. Deliver us from living our lives for the gifts rather than you, the giver. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, meet with us this day, we pray. We praise you for this glorious Savior and this wonderful salvation.